Father, we thank you that you give us life. We thank you for the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Thank you how you have made yourself known to us. And God, we want to keep knowing you and walking with you. And I pray that we would listen to you now as we open up your word, as you teach us how to live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing on in our sermon series where we're looking at Matthew chapters 1 through 7. It's going to take a few more months now, and the good news in that is that you have lots of time to read and reread these chapters for yourself and, and understand what it is that God is saying to you as, as you look at his word. It's a wonderful, wonderful section of scripture. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's got the Sermon in the Mount on there. It's got some wonderful things about how we should respond to Jesus. So I just want to urge you to be getting to know this section of scripture over the next few months. Today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3. It's the story of John the Baptist's ministry. All four Gospels tell about John the Baptist and his ministry, so it's clear that he has something important to say. And what John teaches us in this passage today is how to respond to Jesus. One of the key themes that I've picked up on already from the book of Matthew in the first couple of chapters is that we need to learn how to respond rightly to Jesus. In chapter 1, we learn about how God brought our Savior. And then in chapter 2, we saw two very different responses to our Savior. The wise men, on the one hand, did it right. They worshipped him. They brought him gifts. King Herod, on the other hand, tried to kill Jesus. Two very different responses. But it actually sets a good pattern for us where we realize that we need to be in either one camp or the other. And hopefully, we're in this one where we worship Jesus. Now as we move on to chapter 3, we'll see what John adds to this story about how we should respond to Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the way I want to look at this chapter is that first I want to break it down into four sections and we're going to analyze each section on its own. And then after that, we're going to take a step back and look at the chapter as a whole. So the first section that we're going to look at is Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6, and I'd like to read them now. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. I bet he didn't get invited to too many fellowship meals. But, uh, verse 5, People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So first we're going to look at the reason for John the Baptist's ministry. And, and he doesn't waste any time telling us. In verse 2 he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in the next verse we learn that his ministry was to fill, fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40. If you were to read Isaiah 40, the whole chapter in your Bible, you would see that it talks about the coming of the Lord. And it talks about the payment for sin. Isaiah 40 also talks about somebody who is going to come in the desert with a message of preparation for the coming of the Lord. So fast forward now to John the Baptist, and that's what we see. He's in the desert, and he's telling people, hey, the Lord is coming, and you have to be ready for him. Now his, his message was both a warning and an invitation. It was a warning because of the severity of sin. He said, if, if the Lord is coming, you do not want to dwell in your sin. But it was also an invitation because the Lord wants a relationship with us. And John was giving this message of, hey, you need to repent because what you want is to know the Lord and to walk rightly with him. 
So simply put, John's message was a message of preparation for the coming of Jesus. And as we think about the reason for John the Baptist's ministry, one of my favorite ways to think of John the Baptist is a verse in John 3.30, where John himself, speaking of Jesus, says, He must become greater, I must become less. When I think of John the Baptist, I picture him standing like this, pointing at someone else. And the people came out to see John the Baptist. A lot of people went out to see him. They wanted to hear his message. But John said, don't look at me, look at him. There is someone much greater coming after me, and he must become greater, and I must become less. It's a wonderfully humble pattern for us to follow in our lives as well, of pointing people to Jesus. And as John was pointing people to Jesus, his message was simply, repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. So in that sense, John the Baptist's ministry was, he was the Elijah to come. In the Old Testament, scripture had talked about an Elijah, a forerunner of Jesus, who would come and prepare the way. And that's why we see in verse 4, John wearing these weird clothes and eating this weird food. It, It made him look like Elijah. And Jesus himself said he was the Elijah to come. And obviously he baptized people um, for repentance. But one quick note on that. John knew that his baptism wasn't for salvation. His baptism was merely a preparation for the one who would bring salvation. Okay, let's move on to the second section now, verses 7 through 10. But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So second here, we're going to look at John's message regarding religiosity. Now, make no mistake about it, John's words here were not compliments for the Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't know if they had Pharisee appreciation months back in those days, but this was not greeting card material. Calling people a bunch of snakes, it was an insult then like it is right now. Now, we're maybe not surprised to see John railing on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We see it throughout the the next pages of Scripture as well. But in that day, it was probably quite a shock for John to to look at the spiritual leaders. These were the people who were supposed to be leading the people as they followed God. And John looked at them and called them a bunch of snakes and, and warned them that they were about to be cut down. Now, why was he so harsh to these people? Well, the reason is because it looks like these were people who trusted in their religious works and their heritage. That they trusted in their heritage saying, oh, well, we are descendants of Abraham. I can trace my family line all the way through Abraham. And it says in the Bible that Abraham's family is going to be blessed, so I am blessed. Or or they were trusting in their religiosity. Their attempt was to earn God's favor through their rule following. But what we learn about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, sadly, in, in the following pages of Scripture, is that all too often their hearts weren't close to God. So John's message for them was that they needed to change their ways. Their religious works weren't getting them to God, and they needed to repent. And there's a message for us in here, too. The message is that our religious actions aren't enough. 
Now, if anyone had religious actions, it was the Pharisees. And, and it can be easy for us to fall into the trap of saying, well, hey, look at, look at me, God. Look at all that I'm doing for you. But the truth is that we can't earn our way to God through religious activity. Going to church isn't enough. Going to Bible study isn't enough. Tithing isn't enough. And, and the answer isn't then that we should just keep out adding more things because those things weren't enough. We should add, no. The answer is that God wants our hearts. He's after something much more than our religious activity. Now, I think he wants us to do the right thing, but what he wants first and foremost, and at the foundation of everything that we do, is a humble heart before him, a heart that is willing to go his way. And that's what was lacking in the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's what's lacking all too often in the lives of even well-intentioned churchgoers of our day. And we need to be careful. I think it's, we need a constant reminder in our lives that our religious activity is not enough. We must not trust in what we have done. Not our church attendance, not our baptism. Nothing that we have done should we trust in. But we are continually to submit our hearts to God. And as we do that, then God changes us from the inside. And he bears fruit in us. Okay, let's move on to the third section now. Verses 11 and 12. John said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So third, what we're going to do today is we're going to look at baptism. Now, John's baptism was a water baptism for repentance. Pretty easy to understand what it was. The idea was that people were to, to get baptized and flee from their sins, and, and as a, a show of symbolism, they were to go down into the water to, to show that they were repenting of their sins. But clearly, John says, there was a different baptism coming from Jesus. And, and there are two questions that we should ask about this baptism that was coming from Jesus. The first question is, what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? I just think that that's such an important thing as we see here and in the rest of the Bible. We should figure out what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't have time to do a full exposition of this, but I can tell you, and I, I've studied this one a lot, and, and my conclusion on this is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens for us at conversion. When we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, I believe that we also receive the Holy Spirit. So what happens then, we receive Jesus, and Jesus himself baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. It is something that he does. It's not something that we do. He does it. And let me show you a couple of reasons why I believe that this is the way we should view it. 1 Corinthians 12:13, we see there that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for all believers as our entrance into the body of Christ. And then Ephesians 1.13, Paul writes to the Ephesians, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So, so he's saying to them in that part of the verse, the gospel came to you, you believed, and you were included. And then in the very next part of the verse, he says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So he said, you, you believed, you were marked with him, marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit. So I think the best way to understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that it is a one-time baptism that occurs when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. We're baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, don't misunderstand that with the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, because that is to be a continual process. So think of it this way. We receive Jesus Christ one moment in time. We also receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. From that point on, we are to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, continually being filled by God. That's, I think that's the best way to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay, now the second question we should ask, and you can see it up there, uh, this is what you get when you give a pastor an extra week to prepare a sermon, you get three PowerPoint slides, so just uh, so you know where your money's going. Uh, <laughs> uh, the second question that we should ask is, what does it mean to be baptized by Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with fire? What does that little phrase, and with fire, add to this? There are three major interpretations of this, and I want to walk through them. Now, those of you who love theology, you are going to get, want to get on the very edge of your seat for this. This is going to be thrilling for some of you in here. Some of you might be thinking, oh boy, I, I am not a theologian. I don't love thick books. But, uh, but the idea for you here is, this is in Scripture, and, and we should be able to look at Scripture and say, what does it mean? So whether you love theology or not, we're going to do a little quick tour of what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Um, and we'll just, just leave that slide up there for now and I'll guide you through the next ones. Okay? Um, three views. The first one is that the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire is one baptism. So they're combined as one and it's for believers. And that is that when we receive Jesus Christ, we also receive the Holy Spirit and he immediately begins this lifelong process of refining us with fire. Now, to support that view, you can flip just a few pages to your left in Malachi 3. Just cross over that Testament barrier and look at the very last two chapters of the Old Testament. In Malachi 3 and 4, it talks about a forerunner to Jesus, one who would prepare the way. And then right after that, it talks about this refining process that God's people would go through so that they would offer right sacrifices to him. So, it talks about John the Baptist in Malachi and his ministry, and then right after that, talk about this purification by fire. So that's the first view, is that it's one baptism. The second view is that the baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire was literally fulfilled in Acts 2. Remember there, the Holy Spirit came on the, the disciples, and it says something like tons of fire came to rest on them. And, and then it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So one view of this baptism with the Holy Spirit and with fire is that you say, well, look at Acts 2 and look no further, and there you have it, right there. It was fulfilled in Jesus. Then the third view is that the baptism with the Holy Spirit is for believers, and the baptism with fire is a judgment for non-believers. So there would be two different baptisms, and this is where I have the slides here. So you look at the end of verse 11, and you'll notice there it says, Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That would be one baptism. And with, the, and with fire. That would be the second baptism. Now, in support of this view, um, you can also go to Malachi 3.5, where it says, So I will come near to you for judgment. And that judgment was for people who didn't fear the Lord. And then just a few verses later in 4.1, it says, Surely that day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire. So earlier in Malachi, the fire was a good thing for believers, and now the fire was a bad thing for non-believers. It was judgment. And then also in support of this third view is the very next verse. And, and this, by the way, great tip for understanding the Bible. 
Let the context answer the question. So we're asking the question in verse 11, what does this verse mean? Well, let's see if verse 12 has anything to say. So let's go to the next slide here and, and see what it says. Okay, so you'll notice there at the end of verse 11, it says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And then if you go to the next verse, it talks about how he, Jesus would gather his wheat into the barn. He had his winnowing fork in his hand. And the idea was, when you harvested back then, when you harvested wheat, you'd get the chaff along with it. And the chaff was useless, but you wanted to get that wheat. So it says here, uh, and I think if we're looking at this as an, idea, an example of parallelism in the Bible, it's a, another theological term, the parallelism at the end of verse 11 with the Holy Spirit is parallel to gathering his wheat into the barn. The idea is that Jesus wants to gather the wheat. How does he know among us who's the wheat and who's the chaff? Those who are sealed with the Holy Spirit are those that belong to him. See, you see what I'm saying there, the parallelism? Those who are baptized with the Holy Spirit are the wheat that are gathered into the barn. And then go to the next slide, and we'll see that those who are baptized with fire, it says of them that they are burned up with, uh, burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, just by nod of head, do you see where I'm going with that parallelism there? That two different baptisms according to that third view. One for believers, one for non-believers for judgment. Okay, so which one is it? I've given you three views. Which one is it? Well, my answer is that it's a combination of all three of these views. That, okay, according to the first view... Believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and we are cleansed and purified ongoingly as we submit to God. And I think that's what happens in our lives. We receive the Holy Spirit, and He guides us into what's right, and He leads us away from what's wrong. Also, I think according to that second view, I think that Acts 2 is a very literal fulfillment of the coming of the Holy Spirit and fire. And then according to that third view, I think it's absolutely true that for those who reject Jesus, that they are in danger of the fire of hell. If they persist in their rejection, there is judgment coming. So the coming of Jesus is great news for us who receive him because it means we get God's spirit in our hearts. But for those who reject, it means fire. Okay, let's move on to the fourth point now and you can blank that screen out. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17 now. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now the obvious question here is, why did Jesus get baptized? Have you ever asked that question? He didn't have any sin. It, it was the question that John had. He's like, wait a second, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? So why? Why did Jesus get baptized? Well, the theologians have come up with a couple of good answers, I think. Let me give you two of their answers real quick. First, Jesus got baptized much like we would to show his commitment to following God. Our water baptism is a commitment that we make, saying, I want to follow God. I'm committed to following his ways. And perhaps that's what Jesus was doing here, making a public declaration of that. A second guess might be that Jesus got baptized in order to identify with our sin. 
much later, well, a few years later in Jesus' life, he fully identified with our sin when he took our sins upon him at the cross. So some people have guessed that maybe this is just symbolically one more place where Jesus identified with our sin. He wasn't a sinner. He never committed a sin. But this is maybe just some symbolism of that. So what do you think? Are those answers, I, I think those answers are pretty decent. But let me just give you one word of caution here. It doesn't say that in here. I think that those those might be right. They might be decent answers. But again, Scripture here actually gives us the answer. So again, how do you understand Scripture? Let the context answer. And what does Jesus himself say right here? Why was he baptized? To fulfill all righteousness. And what that simply means is that apparently God the Father asked him to do it. And Jesus wanted to do what was right. So out of obedience, he got baptized. And he asked John the Baptist to obey as well. And it's a great picture of, of obedience for us. God asks us a lot of things, and in obedience, we should follow him. There's another reason from our context as well why Jesus got baptized. Um, and that answer is that God orchestrated this water baptism to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. You'll notice there in verse 16, the Holy Spirit came down on Jesus, and then there was this voice from heaven that came saying, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So apparently, God chose to use the water baptism of Jesus to prepare the way for Jesus. He, he had a message for the people, and he chose to use Jesus' water baptism to do it. Okay. What we've done so far is to walk through each section of this passage. But we're not done yet. Because in my mind, we haven't really asked the big question yet. And this is something that I, I want you all to listen to. It, one of the best questions that you can ask as you're studying the Bible is, what does this passage mean? It, sometimes we, we get our little microscope out and we look at the little verses, and it's good to do that. Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. But sometimes it's good to take a step back as well and say, what is this passage as a whole about? That's a question I want to ask now. I want you to come up with your own answer as I'm talking here in the next minute or so. What's this passage about? A similar question would be, how does this passage fit in with the rest of the context? So what's, what's Matthew 3 in the Bible for? Matthew didn't just write this chapter to answer our questions about baptism or the Holy Spirit. I think Matthew had a much bigger purpose in mind. And, and the truths of this passage don't just stand alone. They fit into a bigger fabric of what God is doing. So what is it? What is this passage about? Well, my answer? This passage is about preparing the way for Jesus. Think about how this passage fits in the context. Chapter 1, God brought his Savior Chapter 2, we saw one really great response from the wise men to worship and one terrible response from Herod to try to kill Jesus. Chapter 3 then fits beautifully in as John's message to us about how we should respond to the Savior. What kind of preparation needs to go on in our hearts? And John spells it out quite clearly that we should repent. Now what is repentance? I hope you know this one because this... this if you don't know it, you'll want to pay extra special attention because repentance, I think, is one of the very important things that we need in our lives. I, I say it often here, but I'll say it again because I want you all to know it and I want you all to be able to communicate it to other people. What is repentance? 
Well, repentance means to turn from sin in both our attitude and our actions. The Old Testament word for repentance was a physical word, meaning to turn around. So the idea was we were walking in a certain direction, headed towards sin, and when we realized it, we should turn around and turn towards God and do what's right. In the New Testament, the word repentance has to do with the change of our mind. And the idea here is that every time we sin, do you know this, that every time we sin, it's because we have made a choice to sin? It's because we have come up with some reason in our own mind to say, yeah, it's okay for me to do that. But to have a change of mind means to realize, oh, what I have done is wrong, and I need to turn from it. So taken together, repentance means turning from sin in thought and in action. And part of repentance, like we see in verse 6 in this chapter, is confession. People were confessing their sins. Now, to confess our sins means to agree with God that we have done something wrong. Have you noticed that, that all too often with our sin, we, we kind of gloss over it? Oh, it's not that bad, or other people have sins that are way worse than mine, or, or we say, the reason I did it is because of this and this. We're trying to justify ourselves when we do that. What we should do with our sin is confess it, not justify it. To confess it means to go to God and say, God, I have done wrong. And I think that this is the best way to live our lives, confessing and repenting often. And like I've said before, I hope you all are okay with having a pastor who repents a lot. Um, obviously that means that there's still sin in me, but the idea is that I, just, I would rather be humble about my sin. Some people have fallen into the trap of assuming that they don't sin very much, or even at all anymore. And I just think that that's so dangerous. I would rather take the humble approach and... and realize that there are lots of things that I do wrong and that I need to repent of. And the reason that I would rather be humble is because sin is so serious. Sin is like a cancer in our relationship with God. It gets in the way of our relationship with Him. I've got this analogy where you picture our relationship with God and God is, God is here. We've got this relationship with Him. And every sin that we commit is like a brick in a wall that we build between us and God. Each brick has a, a specific sin written on it. And God's still there, but our relationship with Him is hindered by this sin. And I think that what we should do then in repentance is look at each brick, the sin on it, and confess it to God, and God then takes that brick away. God takes down that wall. See, repentance is like medicine. But people who don't think they're sick don't take medicine. And that's why, again, I just think that we need to be humble and say, God, show me my sin. So let me just give you a quick two-step process for repentance. The first step is what I just said there, to ask God to show you your sin. And I think that we should be doing this regularly. Now, this one takes humility. But, boy, I, I would love it if every one of us just regularly went before God and said, God, show me the sin in my life. Wonderful verses on this are Psalm 139, 23, and 24. I've asked before that uh, some of you should memorize this. Great, great verses. They say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I just think it's such a great pattern of life 
to regularly go before God and say, God, show me my sin. And then that leads us to step number two. When God shows us our sin, we are to confess and repent of our sins as we become aware of them. And again, God already knows our sins. There's no sense hiding it from them. In fact, there is great blessing in confessing and repenting our sins. Listen to how God views our sin when we repent. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In that light, would you rather hang on to your sin and let it fester inside of you or confess it to God and let him cleanse and purify you? So let's confess of our sins. And as we confess, ask God for the strength to turn away from your sin. Ask God also to help you understand why your sin is wrong. I think this can be a powerful one. As we're letting God show us our sin, say to him, God, why is that one wrong? So that we know when when we're faced with that temptation the next time, we know why we might be tempted to do it. And we can agree with God that it is wrong and we can flee from it. And then ask God for help to make better choices. John the Baptist said in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, repentance is to be an ongoing part of our lives. Repentance isn't just a one-time come-to-Jesus event. It's not like you can say, well, I did that, you know, 20 years ago when I received Jesus. I've repented. I'm good. No. Repentance is to be an ongoing part of our lives. Think of it this way. Repentance is a mandatory part of coming to Christ. I I hope you know that. I hope you know that to receive Jesus Christ as Savior is a recognition that you need to be saved from your sin. So you repent of your sin. That is the only way to come to faith in Christ is with that heart attitude of repentance. Okay, so that's how we're supposed to come to Christ. How do we end our services here every Sunday at Cornerstone? With Colossians 2, 6, and 7, it says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him. How are we supposed to continue to live in Him? The way that we received Him. How are we supposed to receive Him? In repentance and humility. Repentance needs to be a lifestyle. Craig Blomberg says, True faith and repentance will produce a lifestyle and behavior that demonstrate the reality of a changed heart. Do you want a changed heart? I, I want that. I desperately want that. That's what God wants for us. He wants to sanctify us and make us more like Christ. He wants to work on our hearts. How does that happen? As we humbly submit ourselves to him in repentance. God changes our hearts. So we're to keep seeking Jesus, recognizing our ongoing need for repentance. And the Holy Spirit helps us in this. Remember, we receive Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide us through this process of repentance. And God will bear fruit in us. So imagine your life as you regularly flee from sin. Now the bad part is that that means that there's still some sin around. But the good part is that you become aware of it more quickly. And you turn from it more decisively. I want you to imagine your relationships with people or with God as you continually commit to repentance. I want you to imagine a relationship with another person where both of you are committed to repenting, to seeking God and saying, God, what's going wrong with me? How can I change? How can I be humble and live the way you want? 
Imagine if both you and the other person are doing that. Imagine if both of you are saying, I, I should really take this log out of my eye before I try to help you with the speck in your eye. That kind of repentance will dramatically change our relationships for the better. It'll change our relationship with God for the better because we'll be humble before Him. We'll let Him guide us. And it'll change our relationships with people because I think we'll be more humble and, and more gracious and more forgiving. So let's be committed to repentance. Then here's my conclusion. We should continue to repent because the kingdom is still near. Now, I, I kind of skipped, uh, logically, I kind of skipped around in my progression because we didn't really quite address the question yet, what does this passage say for us today? Uh, we looked at the question, what, did it, what was John's message for the people as they came to him? And it was pretty obvious. His message for them was to repent. And I said our, our response should be to repent as well. Well, why do I say that? Well, John's message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And I think the way that this passage applies to us is that we should repent because the kingdom of heaven is still near. It was near in John's day because Jesus was coming right behind him. Literally, right behind him. He was coming. The kingdom of heaven is still near for us today because God is with us. Remember, Jesus was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. It means that the kingdom of heaven is near for us who have received Jesus Christ. He is with us. Also, the kingdom of heaven is near because the very next chapter in God's plan is the end times. Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He rose again from the dead and he ascended from heaven. That was a pretty important chapter. I hope you know all about that chapter. The next chapter is also a very important one. It's called the age of the church. It's what God is doing in us right now. And the very next chapter, the next one to come for us, is the end times, including the second coming of Christ. So the kingdom of heaven is still near. And what should our response be? Repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance as an ongoing part of your life. And by the way, this isn't just John's message. One chapter later in 417, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus was a plagiarizer. He, he said John's exact words. Actually, I think it's because it was God's message first. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We are to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If Matthew so far is about what our response should be to our Savior, we should give him the gift of repentance. I love that word picture of the wise men coming from the east and giving gifts to Jesus. That was their worship. Their, their act of spiritual sacrifice was to physically bring him gifts. It's a great word picture for us that we are to keep on giving gifts to Jesus. And one of the very best gifts that we can give him is ongoing repentance. Not because he needs it, because we need it. It's one of the best ways that we can worship God by continuing to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And remember, the Holy Spirit helps us in this. Our part is to be humble and to let God show us and to repent and confess as he shows us. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you have laid this out here for us, that the kingdom of heaven is near and that we should repent. God, I, I'm just so grateful that you love us sinners. You love us so much that you sent your son for us that anyone who receives him can have complete forgiveness and eternal life.
And you also love us so much that you want to lead us into a fruitful life right now. I'm so thankful for heaven in the future, but I'm also so grateful that right now, God, you want us to live fruitful lives. And I pray that every one of us would be humble and that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Would you please show us our sin? See if there is any offensive way in us. And please lead us in the way everlasting. Help us to confess and repent of our sins as we become aware of them. Help us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to bear fruit for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.